Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Double X Audio Book Club for Thursday, December 2nd. I'm Hannah Rosen. I'm the co-editor of Double X and I'm here with my fellow co-editor, Emily Bazelon. Hi, Emily. Hello. And with Margaret Talbot of The New Yorker. Hi, Margaret. Hi there. Today we're going to talk about Great House. This is the third novel of Nicole Krauss. Her second novel, which many of you may have read, is called The History of Love. Great House is a novel which centers around several relationships of father and a son and a couple of married couples and they are all basically loosely connected by this very heavy desk from the Nazi war era. Now, you know, we all have sentimental attachment to objects, objects that are important to us for various reasons, but I would say that this desk goes beyond sentimental attachment. And do either of you want to explain a little bit what the role of the desk is? I'll start by just saying that it initially belonged to a man, well, we think the way the novel set up that it belonged to a man named Daniel Varsky, who's a Chilean poet. And Emily, you seem to have opened your book. Do you want I to say have. I'm not explaining anything in general in this <laughs> podcast because I found this book mystifying and bewildering. But I will say that the desk <laughs> will plunge in. <laughs> the desk has this really amazing imagery. So this desk, I don't actually think the desk anyone's attached to the desk. It's more like a monster in the book. And Krauss writes toward the end of the novel that the desk was an, an enormous foreboding thing that bore down on the occupants of the room it inhabited, pretending to be inanimate, but like a Venus flytrap ready to pounce on them and digest them via one of its many little terrible drawers. And this image goes on that ends, once I dreamed that I opened one of the drawers to find that it held a festering mummy. That's one of the darker passages about the desk. <laughs> and there's but... some lighter ones? <laughs> well, You'll I, need to point them you know, out to me. Not exactly light, but lighter, perhaps. But um, <laughs> but yes, it is presented as this kind of um, hulking presence. I mean, it's a literal desk. It, it, it's a desk that it belongs. Exists. It exists. It, people it, work on it. People work on it. Two it. of the, um, the, 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 the novel is told by four different narrators. Two of those narrators are are writers, are female writers, both of whom work at the desk. And um, for them, it symbolizes, I think, slightly different things. Actually, one of the writers who is a, a German Jewish refugee who's lost her family in the Holocaust is married to a British academic, and uh, she works at this desk, and he's the narrator of the section about her and their marriage. And I think for her in that Say his section, name, just so we his know. His name is Arthur. Arthur, Arthur yes. Um, and like her name your is, husband. Like my husband, as yes. a matter of fact. And her name is Lottie. 
Yes. And her name is Lottie. And I think the desk in that section sort of symbolizes the secrets and the parts of his wife's past and current life that are inaccessible to him. He is a sort of, he tends her. She's a great artist. He takes care of all the sort of practical matters of daily life. She has a secret, which is eventually revealed. He doesn't really go into her study or, or seldom does, is intimidated by the desk. So it sort of stands for everything that's unknowable. Yeah, about there's his, a drawer that doesn't open. I mean, right, you know. about his wife. And other places it seems to sort of, and I, you know, I don't want to be too crudely, you know, connect the dots here, but it seems to stand for sort of, you know, memory or the burden of the past or the burden of what you inherit from your family or your your culture. Um, yes, and one of the characters become... in the book, and one of the the sort of the heaviest characters in the book is a, is a relic hunter. Essentially, his name is George Weiss, and and most of the sections about him are about his children Yoav and Leah, who live in this kind of <sighs> romantic kind of prison, I would say. They're they're sort of attached to each other and their family history in a way which is utterly suffocating. And he is searching for this desk for reasons which are somewhat right. mysterious. And that's search. He's an antique dealer and he's he what he does is try and uh, hunt down furniture that was taken by the Nazis basically right. and, and return, return it to its rightful yes. owners. But he has these two children who he yes sort of forces to lead this very cloistered life, kind of constantly moving extremely interdependent. Ironically unattached to any actual location, although what he searches for are these kind of right. enormous heavy objects with all the significance he nonetheless, yes, right. he nonetheless doesn't let them get attached to an actual and place. And they are presence. not something out of a Poe story. Yes. I mean, they have this kind of strangely close relationship. They live in kind of spooky isolation. Great house, and, yes. yes. They live in a spooky right, exactly. great house. Mm-hmm. One of which is in Israel. And I think also George Weiss's presence hovers over this book and his obsession with this desk and with objects in the same way in which the desk itself hovers in the room. Because you don't, we don't really meet him until most of the way through the book. And even then, sort of obliquely, it's not really until the end that we get a direct connection with him and what he stands for. No, I feel like even the way we're talking about this book is, well, I'll give us credit and say it's a little like the book itself, or maybe we're just, I don't know, stumbling along here in the dark. But I think partly we're telling it in this fragmentary way because it is a a fragmentary novel. It's told in fragments, and we haven't even mentioned the other couple of father and son, Aaron and Dove, who seem through most of the novel to be fairly disconnected from these other characters. They, you know, there's no desk in their house. They seem to sort of be, you know, out of nowhere. And we'll in explain fact, at the you end. could miss the connection entirely if you were not paying <laughs> extremely close attention. Okay, well, let's I back did. up a little bit. Let's back up and start with uh, with a sort of thematic coherence. Uh, both Nadia, one of the central characters in Lottie Berg, uh, work at the desk and are women writers. They're unusual women because they're very difficult to connect to. Uh, We think of women as being relational. They're both (laughs) completely not relational. This is how Nadia describes why she became a writer. For as long as I can remember, I set myself apart, or rather, I believe that I had been set apart from others, not protected so much as made an exception of. Both of them are sort of difficult to talk to. They talk about uh, connections sort of exhausting them. And Nadia, in fact, talks about one of her husbands. This is an image I remember that has really stuck with me from the book, leaning over and whispering in her ear, come out, come out wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Um, Meaning like, you know, she she has failed relationships. Um, and so so her husband can't basically reach her. And Lottie is a little bit like that, too. I mean, she talks about how she can't listen. Like, music is not a shared activity for her, which that's I found. Actually not oh, that's Nadia, right, that she right. can't listen to music with that other people. That it diminishes people. her pleasure to share, share or a aesthetic music experience, or right. a book with someone else that she loves. Yes. Yeah, so 
they're both these characters who are kind of fiercely protective of their art, fiercely devoted to their art. And there is this tone in this book, and particularly in the sections about these two women, that sort of reminds you of kind of a European art house movie of the 50s or 60s. It's like a Bergman movie or something. They they aren't quite of this world as we know it. I mean, we talked about Franzen the last time. Uh-huh. This is like the Franzadote. This is, you right. know, so, so different from Franzen. Right. There is almost no sort of contemporary sociological detail. There's no dialogue. It has a sort of, you know, there are elements of it that are kind of fable-like, you know, and then there are these elements that are really about sort of the burden of being an artist. Although, you know, in theme, that's a, it's a really interesting comparison you bring up because in theme, kind of, they're both writing in some sense about missed connections, the sort mm-hmm. of difficult, Loss. you know, they're writing about incredibly close relationships. I mean, both these novels are sort of suffocating in that way because they are, you are sort of inside people's bedrooms in that way. It's like husbands and wives, fathers and sons. They're very closely observed yeah, intimate relationships is, which are failing in some way and failing to connect, you know. Right. Um, and a lot of the characters are in these moments of doubt thinking, did I live my life completely wrongly? You know, the the husband of Lottie is thinking, you know, I thought I was taking care of her. She needed me all along. I'm not sure she really did need me. She was this, you know, she was so self-reliant. Um, she kept this secret from me. Another uh-huh. line. Can I just read mm-hmm. a line about that? I wish to punish her for her intolerable stoicism. This is the husband of Lottie speaking, which made it impossible for me to ever be truly needed by her in the most profound way a person can need another, a need that often goes by the name of love. Right. Mm-hmm. These are profoundly long-suffering husbands. And I think the comparison to friends and sort of ends here because that book is kind of shot through with humanity, with all the details of ordinary life that make us interested in people, whereas this one is stripped bare of almost all of that. And the details we do have are strange. Like another of the ones that has stayed in my mind about Lottie is that she had this odd habit of going to some pond and like going into the freezing water and then shooting right out again. It wasn't swimming in any familiar way. It was as if she was just sort of enduring this daily mikvah, right. I guess. Really freezing cold mikvah for so no So that her husband reason. could wonder whether she was going to come back to him. Right. And it was all about him watching and waiting for her, which is what their whole relationship is about. Also, I think it's pretty telling that we were getting Nadia and Lottie mixed up because, in fact, their voices are not particularly different. Mm-hmm. And it's not they have similar kinds of marriages. And I will say right now that there are just ways in which I found this book simply confusing. Mm-hmm. I was having to pay an enormous amount of attention and just do a lot of work to keep track of where I was. Can we leap to comparing it to the um, history of love? Yeah. Yeah. Of love. Okay. Is, <laughs> All right. I was just about to do that because the Aaron and Dove, and we'll just briefly say who they are, is sort of a father who's lost his connection with his son. And he also stands in for someone who's kind of anti He struggles to understand his son, who is in fact a judge, but had one point wanted to be a writer and had sent these mysterious packages back home. Uh, he's Israeli. The son had gone off to war and sent these mysterious packages back home, which uh, were full of his writing as a sort of a novel. And he is like a classic a anti-intellectual. Right. A father trying. With a sensitive son whose mother understands him better than the father does. And so the father has sort of resented that relationship all his life, although he's very devoted to his wife. And the father has, in fact, decided that the son was dead set against loving him, that there was something initially in their relationship which fated them to be estranged. But the interesting thing about Dove the father, although we're describing him in quite a heavy way, is that he is, in fact, reminiscent of 
of the characters in the he's the one no, person. No, he's really not. I object. No, but he because... speaks. He says like it's the one funny. I have it in capitals in my in my. <laughs> he writes he writes about his son's book. No one eats in this book. Like <laughs> that voice to me was All very right, that's a little Neil right. Gerstmann, right, who right. is the very it, beloved. And he is, character you know, he he is speaking to you in a vital kind of you know angry, rough edged, you know, grappling with this history of his relationship with his son kind of way that feels to me like the most immediate voice in the book, I have to I say. I guess that's fair, but it's t- it's completely bleak. Whereas in A History of Love, you had these very lost people who are also searching for connection and often in vain. But you have the sense of this sort of deep humanity and striving at their centers and you kind of root for them to prevail even though you can tell that the book is essentially a tragedy. Now, why is that? Because they're funny? Because they're yes, lovable? Yes, there's all kinds of humor and and sort of just a much more gentle touch. And there, and there's a teenage girl, too. There's a teenage girl who's awesome. She is such an awesome character. Her voice is very distinctive. I feel like the way in which the voices... So one thing Nicole Krause does in both these books is that she takes turns inhabiting different narrators. It's written in the close third person from these different vantage points. And in The History of Love, you know exactly where you are based on the voice. Whereas in this book, no, I just don't think so. I think it has, in the end, this kind of bland patina over it that makes it much harder to really get into. There is this tone. I mean, it's gotten generally quite wonderful reviews, but one of the reviews which I agree with, I have to say, is Ron Charles, who Mm -hmm. loved the first book. Ron Charles, who does these great video (laughs) reviews in the post and um, on the post website. And he says, you know, it's it's a little like they're all under glass. You know, um, I'm not quoting his line exactly, but when you said Patton, it reminded me, you know, there is this kind of feeling of there's a glacial kind of feel to the book and a feeling that you are perceiving these characters through a barrier. Now, I, I feel like I have to bring this in here. I interviewed Nicole Krause at Sixth and I, which is the cultural center here in Washington, the equivalent of the synagogue. 92nd Street. It's a synagogue, Very, but yeah, it operates cool exactly place. like the 92nd Street wise, sort of synagogue that operates as a cultural center. And I talked to her about this question and about the history of love too. And she said about the voices that you're talking about, Emily, that she felt that it was a trick, that the humor was a trick, that it made it too easy for people to connect and that she actually set out in this book to create rather difficult characters because she wanted to explore this idea of the great difficulty of connection. And so that she's working in this territory of very purposefully purposefully of the kind of, you know, this sort of chasm of that's sort of right in the middle of intimacy. Well, bring on the trick. I mean, I guess that I have to dutifully (laughs) respect that. But I just feel like if you think of writing as something where you want your readers to be really responding and engaging with your work, then History of Love is a far more approachable novel. And I don't, I'm bridling at the notion that there's something lesser about that. that you no, know, I mean, I actually love the, the humor and history yes, of Yes, and the pathos and... in that book. It is a somewhat sentimental book, but this book is so austere. And, and I think thinking of it as written from behind glass is exactly right. And I feel like a lot of the people who, and I have friends who say that A History of Love is their favorite book. Mm-hmm. And they will, the, the characters were incredibly vivid and real to them and they cared about them. I just can't imagine these characters having that same kind of longevity. Well, the voice of Leo Gursky and the and the, and the and and, Alma Singer, and Alma, the, teenager. The, the teenage girl, are so, as you say, are so distinctive and so memorable. And, you know, I must say, you do feel with this book that it was almost a purposeful decision to sort of purge it of all humor. Yes. It's not so much that it's, I don't know, I mean, many books deal with, you know, depressing and tragic material. It's not that at all. I mean, History of Love deals with lots of tragic material. It's But it's 
that there's a somberness in the tone that does not necessarily grow out of the the subject matter, but clearly was a stylistic decision on Yes, on it all seems very purposeful, but it felt like a performance to me in the end. And I felt like I had to keep forcing myself to pick this book up, whereas I did not feel that way at all about A History of Love. Mm-hmm. And I think many readers... What do you mean didn't. by a performance? I mean, I'm trying to rest here on this notion of why she would do that and what she meant by a trick and what was, you know, what why a performance? Because you felt like somebody, it was as if somebody was forcing themselves to be a more sort of somber, serious yes, novelist this than is they great naturally wanted to be. capital letters. And we're supposed to appreciate it that way. This is the book that's nominated for the National Book Award. It's where everyone sort of bows down in this critical way. When you go back and read the reviews for History of Love, which I just did, there's a lot of cavelling, but there's also a little bit of complaining about the sentimentality and the pathos. And particularly when I was, re- particularly I was reading the review in The New Republic by Ruth Franklin, there's actually a lot of complaining hmm. and sort of mm-hmm. castigating of Nicole Krauss for having basically tried to have it too easy by letting the characters off the hook in the end by making them funny. And I felt like it was almost as if she had read that review or heard other reactions like that and decided I am that I am not going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, two yeah. things I want to say about this. One is that in the reviews of The History of Love, which I also read, I feel like she was reviewed even in The New York Times and everywhere as in the shadow of her husband, Jonathan Safran Ford. For the, so for the, first the History uh-huh. of Love, it or was always book, like... Was. In what ways is this book similar to Jonathan Safran Four? And, and and in a sense, it was kind of interesting to go back and read them after having read Great House and forgotten about them because it was clear that nobody took her seriously. Which is so unfair. And in light of this book, you feel that receding. And that's very welcome. Right, right. And so I was thinking, well, maybe that was – some of that was a reaction to this notion of like people somehow thinking she was lesser or not ambitious. And so you're writing something which is explicitly more difficult Well, they've ambitious. had sort of opposite trajectories is in the sense that, well, that's wrong. I was going to say his novel was incredibly critically acclaimed in his his first novel and his second less so. And mm-hmm. she's having, but her first novel was acclaimed too. So maybe her first wrong. novel was beloved. I mean, the interesting thing about the Sixth and I event is that I didn't quite tune into this when I started the event, but it was clear that very few people in the audience had read the book, which was, of course, it had just right, come out just that come week. Out. Yeah. And they were and probably so huge fans. They were huge right. fans and of the history of about it. Exactly. I and I was asking all these questions about the Great House and the conversation that we had was fairly serious. And it suddenly occurred to me that there was going to be this disconnect because these people, they was like, I love it. And, they, you know, talking Alma and they were just like a lot of sort of right. girl fans. Right. Right. And right. I just don't think Alma those tells. girl fans are going to be as excited about the second book. And maybe that's fine. She's doing a different thing. But I do feel a little bit sad that the way to be taken seriously is to become so serious. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, a second thing I want to say that I found very interesting that she said essentially in response to the somberness question is she talked, I thought, very interestingly, and Margaret was in the audience, about the active imagination and how her particular creative process works. And and how essentially it works by her occupying the minds and personas of people who are radically different than she is. I mean, she's a sort of young, attractive mother who lives in Brooklyn, and yet she says she feels most comfortable embodying the an old man, <laughs> an old man, <laughs> a cranky old that, man. That's why she writes about uh-huh. a lot of cranky old men because that's sort of where her imagination feels at home. And you know, she was essentially, you know, it, it was a kind of it was an interesting argument against the memoir and the female memoir and for the act of 
of kind of literary imagination, which I really, really appreciated. In fact, she talked about that swimming scene that you talked about as the the kind of spark of her creation of that character. She somehow had an image or saw somebody go into the water. I can't remember the specifics. But then around that, she kind of built this couple and, you know, to try and profoundly inhabit a kind of world of a dour Jewish antique hunter who suffocated his children, you know, and she would take bits of conversation that she had. Yes. With, <laughs> no, but she had take bits of conversation she had with her own child because there's a there is a scene uh, in this Dove Aaron relationship we talked about where the children talk about death and maybe we'll move on to talking about the children in the novel in a moment although you guys are going to be hard on that question but but in oh, which they have a conversation they were so sweet and adorable <laughs> what there um, is no but you're saying in a way that there is this way in which she you know, presents herself both in in her persona and in particularly in this book as sort of an intellectually rigorous and serious and non-memoiristic and non-autobiographical. And very deliberate. And very yeah. deliberate. And, you know, writing is a kind of and, and putting these pieces and fragments together in an architectural way and everything, which is you know, admirable and and somewhat different for, a, you know, to be stereotypical for a sort of, yeah, young female writer. And so there is something, you know, refreshing and astringent about that. And she did talk about children being on her mind. She had two children in between the history of love and this book, and she's now a mother of young children. And children come up in a kind of sort of fairy tale, in a Grimm's fairy tale. <laughs> uh, you know, the children are real burdens in this novel. Uh, there is one mother who is the kind of hennish, you know, overbearing. Jewish mother type. That's Dove's mother, who's a very minor character in the book. But she dies. Most, she's quickly she's killed quickly off. killed off. But for the but Wait, I didn't read her as hennish and overbearing. Actually, maybe I did. Sweet, no, I thought she wonderful, perfect. Like she was, she was connected. I to thought her connected, child. connected <laughs> to her child. child. Yes. Right, exactly. Not overbearing, but she's like the cute Jewishy mother. I mean, she's maybe the caricature. Well, she loves Jewish her mother. She loves her. We don't really and know she, about that. Well, we don't know we're seeing her through the husband's eyes, but she's portrayed as sort of you know seeking to understand her sensitive, troubled, depressive son in a way that the father can't be bothered about can't be bothered about in his, you know. All right. Maybe I said the things she said felt familiar, like things I could say when the son was doing some weird thing out in the garden and you're explaining yeah. to somebody who doesn't what he's doing. Okay. So So she translates she translates, for her son. Yes. But for the She's rest of them, mother. Lottie particularly, uh, and then this weird child who appears. Do either of you want to talk about either of the children, the wheel weird child Emily. who appears or the kinder <laughs> the kinder transport? So basically there's you know, the children are sort of abandoned orphaned. They sort of float around as ghosts in the book. Right. And there's I think this part of the book connects to the Jewish history theme, which is about the power of memory and the way in which it can be a burden. There was this blog post I was really interested in, and the writer talked about, he thinks that this book on one level is about the crushing weight of inheritance, symbolized by the curse that is the desk, which carries too many meanings. And then he also talks about the destructive impact of the duty of having to redeem the past, as well as about the illusion that the meaning of the past, whether collective or personal, can be retrieved. And I actually felt like that resonated for the children. There's this strange detour in the book where um, Yoav Whites, who's the son of the... Furniture hunter. Right, sinister mm-hmm. furniture hunter, has been sent off on an errand to some corner of Europe into someone's odd, neglected mansion. And with him is his girlfriend. I don't, does she ever have a name? I don't know. She has a name. Yeah, she's a narrator, but I don't she's know She's a narrator, a but I think she's unnamed, maybe. Or if she has a name, it doesn't matter that much. Anyway, 
she, this narrator is sort of wandering around in the middle of the night and encounters this little boy named Gigi who has this sort of attic garret-like quarter where he's kind of made a nest for himself. He's right. clearly very it's like neglected. like the mad woman in the attic, but he's the child. But he's the, the child attic, and he yeah. comes and sleeps with them. He's very, he's almost like an animal, but he obviously lives in this place. And earlier in this passage, the narrator woman, has girl, has compared the man who owns this house. She thinks that he looks just like a big famous Nazi. Not Adolf Eichmann, but Himmler. Himmler, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's really creepy, even though it's probably not true at all. And in fact, but you just have this sense Well, but of, he may be, it's sort of ambiguous he whether he is a Nazi who has some of it, because they've gone to look at furnishings. At these right. treasures. And, and where treasures did they come and from? where did they come from? And he's a sort of mysterious and somewhat Right. And then there's this neglected creepy. child who seems to be sort of wandering in this feral who way. Who I mean, is there like a, a any question of whether, I suppose, something? but do you, did you even read it as, uh, is there a question about whether he's real or not? I read it possibly as he's sort of a ghost or he's a ghost of the children that Yoav and this woman might have. It was have, quite hard to tell of, because was, she was very, uh, she was, as characters in this book go, entirely normal. I mean, she was meant to be the narrator who comes and rescues Yoav from his, he, she, she represents some kind of regular love, mm-hmm. that it's, uh, love as, as sort of regular salvation. And so it's hard to imagine her having these fantasies. If it had been Yoav who found the child, mm-hmm. you know, then maybe it would have been more a figment of his imagination. But since but, this was an actual child, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, the kind of um, the strange, the strangeness of regular childhood. I mean, there's there is no regular childhood. There's sort of Yoav and Leah whose childhood was destroyed by their Nazi hunter father, and there is, you know, what the Nazis did to children, and then there's, you know, Kinder transport is is comes up once which is, you know, the children who were brought over from Nazi Germany and sent elsewhere. Uh, Lottie is in charge of a kinder Mm -hmm. transport in this case. And then there's Lottie's own lost child who comes up later in the book. So so there really is no kind of normal kid. No. There's one, you know, there's a sentence which mentions a future normal family, but but basically otherwise. I mean, this little boy, Gigi, stuck with me because I felt like in him was infused a lot of the novel's emotion and feeling about the burden of the past. I mean, he seemed to be this kind of human relic, essentially, Mm -hmm. who had been left behind, kind of washed up on the shores of this big, musty, abandoned house. And yet, to me, he actually was real. He actually eats something in the books, books in which no one eats. Um, And so he, again, you know, is he's forlorn and he kind of leaves you with this feeling and they don't do anything to help him. They leave him there. Um, Unlike the objects, which they're trying to save constantly. Right. Well, they try. I mean, they have this kind of strange moment where he sleeps in the bed with them. And what are they supposed to do? He's not their child. And Mm -hmm. yet, you do have this feeling of foreboding for this child. It's very haunting, actually, thinking about Gigi. I mean, just what he, you know, the idea of snuggling in the bed, like that deep way of trying to provide instant, maternal normalcy and comfort for a child who's essentially abandoned and kind of wanders off with his blankie or whatever he has. You know, it's it's kind of a, it's a very affecting and creepy image. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I felt the same way about the piano hanging from the ceiling. That really stuck with me. That's a moment in which they walk into Leia's house, who's a pianist, this rather normal girlfriend. We'll call her Mindy just because she's so different from <laughs> everyone else. So she is, Papa. we have to note, depressed and unable yeah, to write yeah. her thesis right, and wandering around But she's around like a normal Oxford, college girl Cambridge. who's, you know, screwing up, whatever. She's, you know, a, a standard type. Um, but anyway, she walks into the house and there's a piano hanging from the ceiling. And I thought that was a... About um, to fall at any moment. <laughs> that was an amazing opposite imagery to the desk, which dominates this book, because it was just, you know, this very heavy thing which kind of 
kind of levitated and hovered over everybody. It was a really interesting Man, I'm glad I have no furniture that I really care about. That's all I have to say. <laughs> um, so, um, so shall we uh, move on and maybe talk about what hap- how the book unfolds, how the various mysteries in the book unfold? Sure. I mean, I think actually that would be probably a public service since none of the reviews really did that. And some people, <laughs> like me, might emerge confused from the narrative. Um, okay, so Nadia they goes will. to Israel is what happens. And she... Why? Is, to get back the death. To get back the because death. Because Leah Weiss has come to New York and pretended to be the daughter of Daniel Varsky, the bearer of the desk, and has asked for it back. And I don't know if we ever said, but Daniel Varsky, who we alluded to earlier in the book, is uh, another figure who sort of haunts the book. He is this Chilean poet who actually has been um, disappeared. He yeah, was tortured and, and killed by um, the Chilean junta in the aftermath of Yeah, her. and Nicole Krauss in the interview talked interestingly Clearly about him Italian. because she she said she really has nothing to do with Chile, but it's it's her kind of imagined third space and right. it would just pop up in her novels, you know, not in Israel. In fact, she had not Shows been up there. in History of Love as well. Yeah. Right. This character completely blank to me, didn't understand what meaning I was supposed to be investing in him. He's only seen through through other people's eyes in this kind of flitting way. Is he like the romantic fantasy South American man or something else? You know, she says that she became quite preoccupied with with Chile. At first, as this imagined space is this the, the sort of the opposite of her experience right. in every way, something a place she knew nothing about, this weird little skinny country at the bottom of Latin America. Then she actually went there at a certain point, and then she became quite interested in reading about the era in the 70s when so many people right. were persecuted and disappeared. And, um, and then it became awesome. <laughs> interesting, though. <laughs> yeah. So... I wonder, I mean, you know, partly, although she has said strangely that she doesn't really write about the Holocaust, obviously the Holocaust or that the Holocaust is not a great theme for her. The Holocaust does, in fact, you know, run throughout both of these novels as a reverberating theme. And I sort of think of it as, you know, perhaps she was interested in a kind of contemporary version of, you know, persecution and kind of the need to reclaim memories of people who were expunged. So, you know, perhaps there's a sort of echo of some kind that she's working through between these. um, And you do feel like she could have chosen any number of places in uh this, but that a lot of the places are sort of Eastern European would have been no good because it's close to Holocaust. I mean, you would have to choose a place that was fairly Rwanda might have done. Rwanda might have done exactly. Right, you'd need right. you need some place either in Africa or Latin America right. that was removed and this is from a pla- this was a place where you know writers or intellectuals could sort of meet a fate that would haunt somebody like the Nadia character, which it does when she learns this man has been killed and she still has his desk. You know, it's a place where something like that could happen in the time frame that she's working with. Right. So that's the Daniel Varsky character. We got sort of sidetracked. He's a little Sorry, mechanistic. Yes. I sidetracked you. But oh, you he's, were... a, he's mechanistic because, because, because you don't know that much about him. And because he's playing that the role you just described, Margaret, for Nadia, and then for Lottie, he's the stand-in for her lost son. And I think that's actually where you were going, maybe. With yes, the... I was going to her lost son. Yeah, I don't think he's meant to be and I don't think he's meant to be sort of multidimensional. I mean, I, th- I think he is supposed to be kind of a ghost. Yeah, I, not... I sort of accepted that he's, you know, like the desk. I mean, he's this sort of uniting um, or, you know, he's this light motif that is significant as that and not he didn't need to be a fully yeah and he has a kind of lost youth quality you know it starts with a little kind of flirtation kissing on the couch doesn't Um, go anywhere doesn't go anywhere but but you sort of have that moment sealed and beginning the book as kind of a lost youth and then there's the israeli hunky motorcycle riding character who actually seems to her to nadia who ends up in israel at the end of the book as a 
sort of almost a reincarnation of, of, of Daniel, Daniel Farsky. Except that wrong, he is right. But all, all wrong. And I actually, right. and, and I really like the, <laughs> I, no, he was horrible, please. I really like the way the novel. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. I'm sure Emily and I, having been to Israel in our youth, have both had the ride on the back of a motorcycle experience. And, I, you know, right, it I enjoyed it well. too much, obviously. It doesn't <laughs> end well. That's I literally rode on the back of several motorcycles when I was 18 or 19 years old in Israel, and it's they all sounded exactly like this guy. And in fact, or leather was there leather involved? There was jackets, so much leather and like yeah. the sort of like that. Hey, this I'm an air force pilot, and you know all that stuff is always going on. And so, so he's essentially seducing. Well, he's seducing her, but but for a different purpose than she. She becomes she, fixated on him. Yeah, she wants him to seduce her. And in fact, I thought that was actually one of the. It was. It's very sad, but it's one of the more interesting parts of the novel. She's this quite older woman who at this husband point. has left mm-hmm. at this point, and she's desperately seeking this desk, feeling incredibly insecure about the body of literary work she's created, and she... And her is, life, really. And her life, mm-hmm. and she's in, totally infatuated with this much younger... Now, why does that happen? That was interesting to me how sexual infatuation... I mean, that's the one time we got kind of, you know, rank sexual energy that was completely misdirected. I mean, we had it with Yoav and his girlfriend, but that was more... That was kind of a real love. At least they were a couple. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In this case, you really have this incredibly urgent, powerful. I mean, it's late age, completely misdirected, and it's the injection of this kind of force. I think rank is exactly the right word that's missing through the whole rest of the book. And so, in some sense, this character has to bears the burden of being only made up of that kind of id-like element because Mm -hmm. nobody else has any of it except maybe Dove, the Israeli father. And it was really quite sad because there she is in Israel, you know, feeling like the desk is some gonna gonna restore her by this point we know the desk is not you know is is not going to restore her to any kind of normalcy but she's chasing furiously the desk and then and then instead she meets this israeli and he drives her around and in one of the final scenes you know he kind of jokingly is saying like oh you can have me for free i'm available you know i can be a character in your writing like and sort of introducing her around as a famous american writer but then gets the sense that she's looking for a desk and so leads her into house after house to some random desk you know thinking she just as an American. And he's just desk. trying to right. fleece her, too, in the end. He's just... He's just trying to what? Fleece her. He's right. just out for her right. money. Or they said, please her. Yeah. No. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Fleece. Right. Yes. Right. Right. And so in the end, right, he, she, she, he rejects her very cruelly and, in fact, really only trying to fleece her. He's only trying to fleece her. Yeah. And so and so, so that unfolds in this quite horrible way where uh, what happens at the end with Nadia? She... Well, should we say? The central yes. tragedy okay. of the novel say? Okay. All right. Readers, you can stop listening if you haven't. I mean, listeners, you can stop <laughs> listening if you haven't read the very end, but we will... This is a spoiler alert now, officially. So what happens to Nadia at the end? She goes on this kind of wild drive. She actually takes the car of this young, hot Israeli who has um, rejected her, and she... Cruelly reject. I mean, he was disgusted yes. by her. Yes. That he couldn't right. believe that she thought that there right. was Right. And it's a pretty romantic. terrible image image for older women kind of I, I had to sort of put it's, it aside <laughs> but, and it's also the time when she says you know the walls around her collapse I mean it's when the great house comes to me and like everything that your life is and all the architecture that holds you together and the sort of structure of your brain. I mean, it all completely collapses on her. It's a very terrible moment. Right. And Um, then she's in a car and there's someone on the road who she hits. And that person turns out to be the son of Dove. And This is the thing that's easy to miss, by the way. This is what we were discussing. I confess. I confess. Two of three. Yeah. Two of Hannah three people at this table. Yeah. Hannah did Luckily not miss we it. Hannah is the detective said, among us. Uh-huh. 
Oh, and it's not because Hannah is smarter than the other two yes, or because is, she's perhaps. a better <laughs> detective. <laughs> it's merely because I read the book a couple of times because I was, you know. And there are clues. There are clues. Yeah. Nadia in the first passage is addressing, she says, your honor. And so, and Dove's son is a judge. And there are these references to being in a hospital. Still, this went Still. all beyond me. I read all of that and thought, what is going on here? And never yep. really got together. So now what is really going on yeah. with the closing of this thread? Yes. Yeah, so now so now this is the central question of the novel, which some of the reviews have brought up, particularly the more critical reviews, which is, is there anything redemptive in this novel? So you essentially, you know, the most urgent character in this novel is this father who is in a very authentic voice, desperately seeking connection after many years with his son. He feels like he's getting closer even by him and his son just existing in the same space. He's sort of getting ready, you know, to kind of reconnect with his son and then his son is killed. And so and so why is that? <laughs> and what does that say about the novel? That that's the sort of culminating detective mystery. It doesn't. It, it purposely eludes satisfaction. Like it is. Right. I don't think she, I mean, she does not want to tie everything together in mm-hmm. some neat package. And, and in fact, you know, when you interviewed her, she even resisted the idea that the desk is that important a unifying trope. She said right. that that was really, you know, in the aftermath of of, of you know, writing copy. the promo jacket Some copy. Desperate editor. Yeah, yeah, that, that that she, you know, willingly sort of trumped that up with the PR people to make it. I you think know. that's right. I think she's right about that. I don't think she's self deluded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I think she's she. This is you know, it is all about sort of doubt and uncertainty, and you know, living with uncertainty, and you know, not knowing whether your life has, in fact, you have lived a good life or not. And so, I think. You know, it's fair that she doesn't sort of, you know, we, we uh, you wouldn't want her to suddenly have everyone, you know, get together at a bar mitzvah in Tel Aviv and celebrate each other. Or, you know, I, I'm being facetious, I know, obviously, but, but you wouldn't some, even want no, something you're that totally much. Right. Well, and the, the death here is an ending that doesn't, no new beginnings come from it. I mean, and to go back to our comparison with the history of love, in that book, there's also a premature death because the son who Leo Gursky is looking for dies before Gursky can bring himself to find him. And that matters an enormous amount. And you have the sense of loss in the novel, I think, when you're reading that part of the book, the sense of misconnection. And yet, out of that death, other kind of little sprouts of life grow up. And that is not the case in this book at all. To the extent that there, you know, is a clear ending, it's with But wait, wait, okay, here I confess to another moment of confusion then. Are we sure that he has died, though? Because she's in the hospital with him, and he seems to be in sort of a coma. So in fact, I thought there was a thread of a suggestion that she was going to form some sort of relationship, feeling responsibility, um, having literally collided with this other life, that she feels that she has some, you know, mission or responsibility now. This is you well, being sunnier than perhaps. <laughs> no, that's exact. That's exactly but, my but thought. Hannah's I mean, <laughs> Hannah also is She's sunnier than this it. book. You Who isn't it? sunnier than this book? <laughs> but it's not those. It's, Wait, but it's not the sunniness. Yeah, it's like yeah. there. You know, this book is markedly absent of conversation. It's a book that's made up of monologues, narrators, you know, describing situations in in moments of intense emotion, grief, or separation. And she is talking to someone. I mean, the person's in a coma, Mm -hmm. but she, you know, her section is narrated, judge, comma, blah, 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 blah. And your Your honor, honor, rather. And she is 
taking care of him in some way. I mean, she is talking to a person in a coma. And so it's the ultimate reaching across the chasm of isolation. Isolation. (laughs) But, you know, talking to someone in a coma. But But it is also in its weird way an extreme act of love to sit and talk to somebody who's in a coma and feel complete responsibility for the death of this person. Right. And it is... He does not die in the end, so yeah, it's true. You he said, doesn't. You're right. I said he was killed. You're right, but but it, but I but I really she's talking about brain death. Yes, I don't. It's not well, you know. But the first, actually, the in a way it's sort of like you know the epigraph to the book is talk to him. You know, that's the first italicized lines of the whole book because this is ostensibly the voice you realize later and some cases much later in my case that it's the this is the voice of the nurse sort of or someone in the hospital yeah and that is our imagery for that kind of situation right as you know you all the time the family is oh the the one is brain I mean there's how how many times this has happened in movies and docudramas and you know you're talking about and their hand suddenly starts to move and they you know they it happened in Glee just the other day (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know I'm sure Nicole Krauss is really happy that you brought Glee I'm sure she doesn't know what Glee is (laughs) Anyway, so um, so anyway, it is it is a kind of you know I think you know if we take her at her word that she's she wants the connection to happen, she just thinks that it's extremely extremely difficult. Then right, this is the image, right? And that is sort of the perfect image for exactly that sensibility. Okay, Mm -hmm. well. I think we just about covered it. Does anybody have any other last thoughts they want to share about the book? Anyone who's picking this up who has not read History of Love, I would suggest going back to History of Love for sure. Would you guys recommend the book? As a kind of object of art to look at and sort of watch rotate, perhaps, but not as a book to engage in and feel like you're living with. She's, you know, an enormously talented, you know, beautiful writer, I think it should be said. But if I were picking out a Hanukkah gift, I would give the history right, of love. the gift mode. I would definitely recommend this book. And in fact, I did. And we'll see what my husband says about it when he's done reading it. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, we are pretty sure that our next book is going to be the Lydia Davis's new translation of Madame Bovary. So um, you all should read that to prepare for our next audio book club. Thank you. And join us again. And of course, if you have recommendations, put them on the Double X Facebook GabFest page. It is not too late to change our minds or recommend books for future book clubs. And thanks to Abdul Rufus for engineering this podcast. Thank you. 